Andy and Katie. Uh, some of you know a few months ago I woke up in the middle of the night with chest pains, and I'm not sure what a heart attack is supposed to feel like or any of these things, but I know I woke up and it didn't feel right, so I woke up Terry and I said, I, I think I need to go to the ER. And so we uh, called a neighbor, and the neighbor came and stayed with our children at the house, and we went to the ER. And of course, you know, as I always say, if you're going to die, just do it at home, because otherwise you'll just die sitting in a chair in an ER waiting to be seen, unless you say you have chest pain. Then they get you in. So the next time you break your ankle, just tell them, I'm having chest pain, but it hurts down here. <laughs> just kind of in this region. feel it really strong. So I figured out the way to do that. Yeah, I just said, look, I'm having chest pain. Boom, they got us right back. Uh, it was interesting because my heart rate was between 38 and 42, and that's where it stayed. And uh, they kept asking this strange question, are you a runner? Why, why are you laughing? <laughs> wow. I feel, and I kept asking them, do I look like a runner? I was encouraged, you know. I guess, guess they're chubby runners, you know. Yes. Uh, I was not a runner, but uh, they did say, look, you ought to go see a cardiologist. So I did and got to do the cool treadmill test and blood work. And of course, then you get the ominous news of your good cholesterol is low and your bad cholesterol is up. Is there anyone in South Louisiana that doesn't have that? I mean, is that, you know, I guess there are. Well, my wife, who uh, does not let things go past, the memory of an elephant, you know, scheduled a secret uh, update for me. So I went to the doctor, our regular doctor, and did some blood work, only for it to come back and say my levels were normal which was to the disdain of Tara, but to my great joy. <laughs> so I was like, I knew there's nothing wrong. Just because my pants don't fit like they used to, nothing's wrong. It's normal, right? So one of the things that uh, we know about doing blood work and heart rate, as we talked about last week, they're your vital signs. They let you know when some things are normal or abnormal. And yesterday marked five years since I've been pastor of this church. And we'll do a more formal celebration next next week, and uh, we're going to, for those of you who uh, uh, want to stay next week, we're going to have lunch and some things, so it'll be there, but you know, being somewhere five years can cause you to think through some vital signs yourself of how are we as a church, and how are we doing, and as I noted last week with a large stack of books, we could we could forge through numerous books that have been written, written about the church, but I think the greatest book is the Bible to tell us how we're doing what we should look like, and that's what we've been doing as we walk through Romans 12 and where we're going to pick up today. There are some vital signs to a healthy church and what it looks like, what's normal and what's abnormal and what we should be focused on and what we should not be focused on. And so we're just going to continue in Romans 12, 9, where we were last week. But I'll ask you to stand, and again, we're going to read 9 through 13, and should the Lord give us five more years, we'll make it through 10 through 13. This is Paul writing to the church at Rome, and he's given us some vital signs for the church and for the believer in themselves. Beginning in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Father, again, we thank you for preserving your word that we may have it. Thank you that it's written in English. 
We are mindful of countless languages today that lack Scripture. They have no part of Scripture in their language. And Father, as always, would you send people out to study linguistics, to study your word, and then to immerse with a people group and translate the Scriptures? Father, week in and week out, we're going to continue to pray until every language has Scripture. Thank you for John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, who had a passion to see Scripture in English. Thank you that we have it today. We pray now, uh, having it in our own translation won't do us any good unless your spirit lights it up to us. And so now we pray for your spirit to teach us. I pray you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And Father, I pray for your anointing. I need you to feed your people. These are your people, Father. They're not just mine. And so feed us. Show us vital signs. Please let our love be genuine. Please let us hate evil. Please let us be people that are clinging to what's good. Teach us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In your outline, you'll see we're walking through some of these vital signs. And we started last week in Romans 12, 9. And in theory, that's where we'll end today. But vital sign number one is that love is genuine. And it means without hypocrisy. And we talked uh, extensively about that last week. But I want us to spend just a few moments. And the idea is that love is real. It's authentic. Or we would say no masks. No what? No masks, all right? The word behind this, uh, where we get the word hypocrite from, the Greek word here was used in the theater, and folks who would wear different masks to form different roles and play different functions, they would be called hypocrites. And so Paul takes that language and he puts it into our uh, association with the church. He says, look, when we're in the church, let's not put on a mask. Let love be the real deal. Don't let it be external and you're pretending. Let love be real. So no masks that are here. The Latin word was the word sincere. What's the word? And it means without wax. What does it mean? The word sincere means without wax because they would take and pottery and they would have cracks or chips in it. And they would take wax, cover, fill, the, fill the crevice, and then they would paint over it. But folks who said, look, this is the real deal. There are no cracks that are hidden from you. It's sincere. It's without wax. It's the real and authentic thing. And so Paul is saying, look, don't let there be any falsity to our love. Let it be real love. Let it be authentic. Let us actually care. Genuine love is one that has others as its object. Hypocritical love is one that you care about yourself. The focus is on you. You want to look good in what you're doing in your loving. And that's not going to help anyone. I was thinking through this week of an example of uh, hypocritic love, and I thought of Samson and Delilah. Have you ever heard the story of Samson and Delilah? I like Samson because we're a lot alike in physique and in our strength, and uh, one of my heroes. But Terry Moore, uh, who's not here, probably has Samson's hairdo, right? And so as you think about it, Samson was a Nazarite, had never let his hair be shaved, and uh, it was a part of what God's plan was for Samson. But then he goes and goes against his parents' wisdom, which is a word for our students, goes against his parents' wisdom and finds this woman who is of less repute. And so the leaders of the Philistines come to her and say, look, we'll each give you 1,100 pieces of silver, find out the secret to his strength, and then tell us. And so she begins a search, and she begins to ask and says, tell me what it is. And how many of you know Samson told her? Did he tell her or not? But did he tell her the first time? No. He said, if you take these straps and put them around me, then I'll be as weak as any other man. So what does she do while he's sleeping she takes the straps, and then she says, Samson, the Philistines are opponents, to which he rises up and, and breaks the, the straps, right? To which, you know, if I were Samson, I would get a clue, right, and initially. 
but Samson was not the brightest. He was just the strongest. So uh, she goes through and, and he says, well, if you, if you uh, weave my hair together or if you'll pin it down, he goes through two and three more tests. And then I love it because then Delilah says to him, how can you say I love you and you not share your heart with me? Isn't it interesting that the one who loves money more than the man she's really lived is saying, if you loved me, you would really tell me, you would really share with me. I think one of the greatest pictures of hypocritical love is Delilah did not love Samson. Delilah loved Delilah. And Delilah loved 1,100 pieces of silver from each of those Philistine leaders. Friends, we don't want to be Delilah. When we say to one another, we love you, we want it to be real. This is a vital sign of a church. If a church loves with Delilah, self-interest type love, it's not a healthy church, and it's going to be in trouble. What does genuine love look like? I want you to turn one more time to 1 Corinthians 13. I know we looked there last week, but I want us to look one more time at 1 Corinthians 13. What does genuine love look like? Because as we talk about love, we're not just talking about feelings of, ooh, I love you. We're not just talking about emotional. There are some concrete aspects to love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, particularly verses 4 through 7, and it begins by this saying, love is patient. How many of you know someone that it's difficult to be patient with them? How many of you think you're that someone to someone else? <laughs> yeah, here's the incredible reminder, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. You know, we live in a world where folks are unkind to others. The incredible thing is, says, look, love does the kind thing. Love doesn't want to seek to harm other folks or embarrass them or mock them. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast inside the church. Sometimes folks are going to be blessed with something that you won't blessed with. The real measure is what your heart says. If you rejoice with them in what they've received or if you're jealous of them, then you'll know where your heart is in relation to love. Love doesn't envy and love doesn't boast. Is it about us? We don't do this so that we can say, look at me. Look at how loving I am. I'm the most lovable man in the world. We don't say that, right? Love is not, does not envy, it does not boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, which will flow into what we're seeing today, that genuine love hates evil, friends. Genuine love clings to what's good. We're going to see that. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what genuine love looks like. Now, the question is, how can 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 be produced in us? Because I, I would say to you, it's a daunting list. But the way 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is produced in us is constant meditation on the cross. Friends, as we constantly meditate on the cross, we might find then that Christ's love enables us to be more patient, just as Christ has been very patient with us. We might find then that Christ's love enables us to be kind, just as Christ has been kind to his enemies. We'll find then that Christ's love keeps no record of wrongs because he took our record of wrongs. And we find that we're able to forgive and not hold a grudge for years. If we have folks in here that are holding grudges, friends, we're never going to be the healthy church that we need to be. And that's not loving. That's not genuine love. That's hypocritical love. That's love with a face, with a mask. We don't want to have masks. We want it to be the real deal. Not because I think we should, friends, because that's God's plan for the church. And his son purchased the church and his spirit powers the church. This is what it is. And so we want to line up with his word. So if we're going to see 1 Corinthians 13 produced in us, I would encourage us, friends, memorize it. 
meditate on it. And meditate every day on the cross and pray through it. And say, God, produce this in me. We probably wouldn't have to do as much marriage counseling if we lived 1 Corinthians 13 with our spouses. We probably wouldn't have to do as much family counseling if we lived 1 Corinthians 13. The issue that I hope that you'll see living 1 Corinthians 13 is not an option. It is Christianity. It is love. So it's not just super Christians. This is what the church is to look like. So we should be those who beg and plead and say, Jesus, produce it in us or we'll never get there. We'll never get there. Today, I want us to go back to Romans 12 and we're going to pick up with the rest of verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. But these are also participles. So in one way, it says, let love be genuine. Hating what is evil clinging to what is good and they're present tense so in the sense that we want to continually be hating evil we don't want to just hate evil once hating evil should be the way of our lives we don't want to just cling to good once and say i chose good that one time we want to be those who are constantly clinging to good and what describes us is that we are those we're a faith community in which we hate evil but we cling to good because it's love so let love be genuine and he's describing it what's genuine love look like hating evil clinging to what's good. Uh, I put a quote there for, for on your sheet from Douglas Moo. He says, Love is not genuine when it leads a person to do something evil or to avoid doing what is right. And friends, we could put the pedal down on this and we could get through Romans 12 and I could move on to the next aspects, the next vital signs. But I think that we need to stop and meditate a li- little bit this morning on what it means to hate evil and cling to what's good. And as Moo says, love is not genuine when it leads a person to do something evil to avoid what's doing right. If someone in our life is encouraging us to do evil, they're not displaying genuine love. They may say, if you love me, you will do this. But your response to them will be, if you loved me, you wouldn't lead me to evil. You would not lead me to evil. Genuine love does not lead to evil. Genuine love does not lead to sin. Genuine love leads away from evil leads away from sin. So anyone who tries to get us to disobey Jesus, they're not displaying love to us, friends. They're not displaying love in our midst. I went to school with a girl, and we were friends. She was there at the BSU at that time, now the BCM. And her father encouraged her to be active with other college boys. And Now, one reason he would do this is because he was a non-Christian. But the second reason he's doing it, based on Romans 12, is He obviously doesn't love her. I don't know any father that would encourage a daughter to do this, but you can be certain that if there's a father who's doing it, it's not genuine love because genuine love does not lead to evil. It leads away from evil. But this happens all around us. But some of you would say, well, I'm not leading someone else to evil. I'm not encouraging them to do evil, but I may still be choosing it myself. Well, don't be fooled, friends. Uh, Don't make the mistake of saying the evil I cherish only hurts me, so it's not unloving to others. Here's why that's wrong. You were made to display the worth of Christ to others. This is what's good for them. That's what it means to love them. But if you do things to yourself that damage your delight in Christ and your display of Christ, you sin against others and not just yourself. You rob them of what God made you to give them. So, friends, if you're saying, well, I'm not leading others, I'm not encouraging others to evil, but you and I are continually choosing sin and we're not displaying Christ, you are doing evil toward them, friends. We have a responsibility to delight in Christ and to display Christ. And if you and I are choosing evil, we're not leading leading them to what's proper and we are sinning against them. Love does not delight in evil. It does not find trash 
intriguing. Love does not find trash intriguing. On the other part of this verse then, hold fast to what's good, if someone is trying to stop us from doing the right thing, the good thing, they're not being loving either. Anyone who tries to keep us from obeying Jesus is not displaying love. So anyone who encourages us to disobey Jesus is not loving, and anyone who tries to keep us from obeying Jesus is not being loving. And it could be your grandma. It could be your grandma. I love Momo. You, you've seen my grandmother, Momo. She uh, celebrated her, her, her birthday here recently with us. She's 89. Yeah, for 89. But my grandmother used to always say, and she would be so funny, she would say, if you hear God calling you to Africa, just listen twice. Listen twice. She wanted to be careful. She wanted her, her grandson to be careful where he went. But friends, I, I want to encourage you. It is a lot safer uh, sleeping in a hut in Rwanda for the sake of the gospel in obedience to God than sitting at Mama's house eating biscuits in disobedience to God. And so even grandmothers and sometimes even moms and dads and even husbands and wives can say, look, I'm doing this because I love you. Friends, love does not keep us from obeying God. Love does not keep us from obeying God. And so we want to be mindful that genuine love is going to push us toward God, not keep us from that. We want to cling to what's good. In Numbers 25, it's a tough day. If you think that sexual purity and purity in general doesn't matter, you should go back and read Numbers 25 because 24,000 people died on one day. How many of you think if that was in your hometown, it would make a difference? How many of you think that would make a news flash? 24,000 people died today, sexual sin. In other news, the Tigers went on, right? So we would probably take notice. 24,000 people died in Numbers 25 because of sexual sin. At the end of Numbers 25, Moses is told by God to put the Midianites to death. He's told, be hostile, harass, and strike them down because they harassed you. Part of the reason the Israelites were led astray that day was because of the Midianites. And so God is exercising judgment on the Midianites for their sin. He's using Moses and his crew to do it. But he's saying, be hostile toward them, Moses, because they pulled you away from me. Treat as an enemy, Moses, the Midianites, because they pulled you away from me. And I wonder, friends, if we are hostile toward the things that pull us away from Christ. I wonder if we treat as an enemy the things that are causing us not to cling to what's good, but to cling to them. I wonder if we're going to be hostile and see this as an enemy and treat it as an enemy. We should live Numbers 25, which I would say to our students, I'd say to our adults. If people we are hanging out with are influencing us more for sin than we are influencing them for holiness, then we need to rethink the time and ways we spend with them. Alan Jackson from New Orleans Seminary used to always say that Jesus maintained a position of influence. Though he hung out with sinners, Jesus was not influenced by the sinners. Jesus was influencing the sinners. And so we want to be careful for the sake of the gospel. I'm not saying we shouldn't hang out with sinners. I'm saying that we need to have accountability. And I need, to, need us to know that if our influence is less on them than theirs is on us, and they're causing us to move away from what's good instead of clinging it, then we need to reevaluate that. Friends, we want to influence them for good. And we don't want to be influenced necessarily for sin. So anyone who pulls us away from doing what's good, look, we want to be hostile to that. In the gospel community, we show genuine love by spurring one another on to keep hating evil and to keep clinging to what's good. And I would add one more point here before we move on. Being silent is not loving. Being silent is not necessarily loving. If we see someone letting go of the good, and beginning to hold on and embrace the evil, then 
to remain silent is not to love them. And we have too many churches that are silent. And we have too many families that are silent. We need brothers speaking into the lives of brothers to say, friend, do not abandon your marriage. We need brothers speaking into the lives of brothers saying, friend, work is your God, not our God. We need brothers speaking into the lives of brothers, encouraging holiness and purity. We need sisters speaking into the lives of sisters for the sake of the gospel and not just speaking about sisters. This is how the gospel community works. And it doesn't mean that being silent is being kind. And if we're too afraid to speak, then we must beg Jesus for courage to do the right thing. We want to speak and do it in a loving way. Colossians says, let your conversation be full of grace. Season with salt. That's how we want to be. But to be silent is not necessarily to be loving. It may be that if we're silent, we're actually displaying hatred toward them. So let us speak for the cause of Christ and let us speak graciously to one another. So here's a bit of a checkup for us then. Is Crosspoint's love genuine? Do we really love each other in this faith community? Or do we just put a mask on when we interact? When we go around at the handshaking time, do we shake their hand, but inside we're like, I don't really like you. Hey, how's your family? Right. Because that junk isn't going to get us anywhere for the cause of Christ. Is Crosspoint, are we the people that are hating evil together? And we're pushing one another to hate evil even more. Are we the people then that are clinging to what is good together and constantly spurring one another? Embrace the good. Embrace the good. Embrace the good. If we don't meet regularly, you probably won't be a part of that. If you're not in a small group, you probably won't be encouraging many other people directly. So we want to encourage you. You've got to be involved. You've got to be connected. And we should be constantly, week after week after week, reminding each other, choose Christ, not sin. Cling to what's good. Hate what's evil. Because I need to be reminded each week. How many of you would say you need to be reminded each week? I need to be reminded actually each day. Anyone? That's why I love fellas at 5 on Tuesday mornings. I don't like getting up at 4 whatever to get ready to come here, 4.57. I don't like having to get up at that exact time to be able to come here. But my Tuesdays are different because of fellas at 5. My Tuesdays are different because I meet with other brothers right here. And we pray for one another. And we remind each other on Tuesday, choose Christ today. Choose Christ today. I want us to cover some important questions then, and particularly as parents, we have to help our children understand who gets to pick what's good and what's evil. And so I want us to spend the next part just thinking a little bit on what is evil and what is good and where that comes to. Question number one, who determines what is good and what's evil? And there are a couple of options to this. I taught a course in ethics in Uganda two years ago at the seminary. I thought it was funny. You know, my degree is in preaching, but I was teaching ethics. But you just never know where the Lord will use you. But as I was studying, it had a lot to do with even this. Where does good come from? Is there right and wrong that is true for every country, regardless of where it is in the world? So who gets to, to, to pick what's good and what's evil? Option number one is the strongest people. The strongest people can pick what's good or evil. It happens on the playground. <laughs> the big guy says, here's what we're playing. We got the rules, right? And you have this idea that might is right. The problem is power does not always equal goodness, right? Another option for where good and evil comes from is each community. Each community says, well, here's what's good for us, and here's what's bad for us. But what happens in that is a whole community may decide sacrificing babies, that's good. It's good for us. We decide it's okay. They may also decide stealing from your community, it's okay with us. That's not bad. That's good. That's in our good column. We can do that. 
So when each community decides, then there are no uh, absolutes outside of that, no objective. Everything is subjective, which even further than that, each individual chooses what's good or evil. I assure you, when my daughters begin to date, I will make sure the sons who come to date my daughters know what good and evil is, right? And it's not a choice you get to make. It's not a, I choose what's good for me, what's bad for me. If that, if that happens, then you, we may do some incredible sins against one another, but it's not wrong because I think it's okay for me. That's why we're pushed to the truth of the word. The only option for who determines good and evil is God. God determines good and evil. Why then? Well, we have absolutes with regard to good and evil. It's outside of our subjective lives. He determines what's good and evil for all times and all places. And what we get to then is why? Why does he get to choose? And what I shared with the college students this, this uh, weekend, the Bible has three reasons why it says that God is sovereign, why he's king over everything. Well, the first reason it gives is he created everything, and he created it from nothing. The second reason it gives is he sustains everything. The third reason it gives is because he needs nothing. So he created everything, he sustains all things, but he needs nothing. And the Bible seems to think, you do all that, you get to be in charge. So the next time, friend, that you do that, we will let you be in charge. But until that happens, God is sovereign. God is over all of it. And Jesus seems to think that he is king, not just of a little band of believers. You know, there are folks in this world that think Jesus is king of just a little band of believers, those people that believe in him. But Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Colossians 1 says that he is the king, that all things are created by him, for him, and by him, through him, and for him. All things. Jesus is king, friends, over all, not just a little group of believers. So who gets to pick what's good and evil? God. He does. He is the holy, sovereign king. He's in charge. He gets to say. Now, how do we know then what's good and evil? Somebody, how do we know what's good and evil? God's picking, but how do we know what he's picked? How do we know what he's declared as good and evil? Anyone got a wild guess? There it is, his word. His word is certainly one place. He has recorded his word. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember Jesus? He'll say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and the reason we can know it's there is because it's recorded for us. We have his, uh, his word. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them. This is an important part. Teaching them to obey what? All that I've commanded you. He has commands that he expects of the whole world. I love Ephesians 5. You know why I love Ephesians 5? It says, don't be foolish. Know what God wants. Don't be foolish. Know what God wants. Don't waste your days. Know what God wants. Well, why? What's he got to do? Well, he's the sovereign one, and the only perspective that matters is his. So don't be foolish. Know what he wants and do it, friends. Do it. Psalm 119. You know how a young man can keep his way pure? College students, high schoolers. Psalm 119 says, by guarding it according to your word. See, God's word is going to guide us, and this is good, this is evil. But not just his word, because there are plenty of atheists that don't believe God's word, so that means they're off the hook with regard to good or evil. Romans 2 says, no, not only has God written good or evil in his word, he's also written it somewhere else. Does anyone know where? In our hearts. In our hearts. So, friend, you can believe the Bible's not true, but it doesn't uh, remove you from guilt before a holy God who's written good and evil on each of our hearts. Even if unbelievers do not have moral laws in their minds, they still have it written on their hearts. So here's where we get to. God gets to say what's good or evil. He's recorded it in his word and on our hearts. But now this is question number three that's really important. How can we hate evil and love good 
like God does? Are we clinging to good like a life preserver in the ocean? Do we hate evil? These are strong terms. And this is what I want you to see. God doesn't just say, choose good, don't choose evil. He says, cling to what's good and hate evil. So I guess I would ask, do you hate lust? Do you hate lying? Do you hate gossip? Do you hate abortion? Do you hate theft? Do you hate adultery? See, it's not just choose. Hate, friends. That's why we have to take some time to meditate on this. God doesn't want us to be just a little bit neutral. God wants his very character and his very passion reflected in us. So do you hate evil? Does Crosspoint hate evil? Do we cling to what's good? Well, I guess that gets us to some questions of what does God hate? And for some of you, it may be new to you that God hates. But God does hate some things. Turn to Proverbs 6. Turn in your Bible to Proverbs 6. I'll show you just a few. I love the style of Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16. It says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. I was like, well, why'd you start with six? There was seven he hates. Why don't you just say seven? It took extra time to read that. There's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. He hates haughty eyes, proud eyes, people that are proud in their own eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil. Oh, we don't want that to be us, church. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Man, that, that'd be the next thing to take to the church business meeting, right? Hey, you've been working division in this mis- God hates you. Hates what you're doing. See how that turns out. They'll vote you out. Move on to the next church. But... Here's what the word says, and we don't want to miss it. God hates this. And, and I, I think about even that phrase there in the, in the, in the middle, hands that shed innocent blood. I read this week, R.C. Sproul made, uh, it quoted, and he said, you know, we are upset, and rightly so, about those that died on September 11th in New York City in 2001 and the thousands that died. He said, but you do realize that more U.S. citizens died in the wombs of U.S. women on September 10th than died in New York on on September 11th. When will we hate abortion? When will we hate hands that shed uh, innocent blood? Isaiah 1, turn now to the right to Isaiah 1. God's not through with his hating. In Isaiah 1, he's, he's giving them a hard time. Uh, he's putting their sins before them. It says things that are happening and evil is happening and you're not doing anything about it, but you keep worshiping me. Beginning in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. 
They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You see, they were continuing on with their religious feasts. The problem is they weren't living good, they were living evil and what they were doing. They weren't taking care of the widow. They weren't taking care of the children. They're shedding blood. And he says, you're doing these religious feasts as if everything's okay with me when your life is another way. He says, you know what? I hate when you gather. I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate your religious farce. He says, you want to know what you should do? Hate evil and do good. Then I want to hear you. Friends, you know what God hates? He hates when people gather and it's not real. It's when people gather and think we can go about religion and it doesn't matter what we do on Monday through Saturday. Friends, don't let it be about religion. Let it be about hating what God hates and loving what God loves. And it's what's said of us. Psalm 9710 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I'll quote one more for you just about God. Psalm 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The question that I have for us is, how do we come to hate sin? And how do we come to love good as God does and as Christ does? And the very first answer I would say to you is what Jesus told Nicodemus one night. Friends, we must first be born again. If we're going to hate evil and love good, we must first be born again. We must have his very spirit in us. Otherwise, that which is born of the flesh has its heart set on the flesh. That which is born of the spirit loves the things of the spirit. Friends, this isn't self-help. You can't help. You can't change this. You can't say, well, I'll be better. I see what he hates and I'll hate it. Friend, if you don't have his very heart in you, you will not hate as he hates and you will not love as he loves. So it begins with having his heart in us, being born again. It must be fulfilled in us. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. God must give us a new heart. Then when he does, then it's about daily transformation. Remember what Romans 12, 2, when we started weeks ago? Do not be conformed, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know what God's will is, what's perfect and pleasing and acceptable. How is it then that once we have a new heart, that we continue to grow in the things of him? We must not be conformed to the world, friends. We've got to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. The way that transformation occurs, 2 Corinthians 3, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If we don't hate what God hates, and if we don't love what God loves this morning, we probably don't need to rush out of here. This morning, we probably need to spend some time and say, why don't I hate what you hate? Why don't I love what you love? What is it that you need to work in me? What is it that you need to transform about me? What is it I need to yield to you? That I can hate what you hate and love what you love. And friends, this isn't optional either. This isn't super Christianity. This is Christianity. You say you're following Christ, but you're not doing this. This isn't true of you. I say to you, friend, you're not following Christ. This is what it means to be his. We don't pick and make our own definition. He says we're to hate evil. We're to cling to what's good. I want to give you some encouragement. The more we love Christ, the less we'll choose sin.
The more we're satisfied in Christ, the less we're going to look for satisfaction in something else. You see, when we choose sin, it's because we're looking for satisfaction somewhere else, and it reveals we've not been satisfied in Christ. And friends, Christ is all satisfying. He is sufficient. And so the more we're satisfied in him, the less we will, we will choose sin. We cooked a big breakfast yesterday for the college students at our house. I grilled some sausage, and we had uh, Eggos, and we had biscuits, and we did bacon, and uh, Miss Cindy Sambola and Wendy Cheney both gave food, and we had some breakfast casseroles, and uh, it was funny. So we had this big feast, and then when we finished uh, in the fellowship hall, it was time to go to lunch. The problem was I wasn't hungry for lunch, you know, and Chris Mott was like, what are you doing? And it was a natural transition of we might could go to lunch together, but my problem was I was stuffed, which is rare, but it happened. And so because I was stuffed, I didn't, I didn't go eat lunch. And friends, when we are full with Christ, I don't look for sin. When I've tasted and seen how good he is, I'm not attracted to evil. I don't want trash and rubbish. I want to be satisfied in him. So the more we're satisfied in Christ, the less we will choose sin. And this is what we want to pray. Friends, if our passion is not his passion, then God change our passions today. Gets us to our last question, question number four. How do I understand, how do I come to understand this is best for me? That what God says is evil is bad for me, and what God says is good is good for me. Because as you know, we're the people who don't like to be told what we should or should not do. And as we saw from First John, uh, every do not from God is for our, anyone remember? Best. Every do not from God is for our best, and every do is But we're people that don't like to be told do not. When I was a little boy, my sister always reminds me of this story because sometimes I guess love keeps records of wrongs. But uh, I was in a store, and, you know, mom is like, uh, don't run around. Don't run around. Turns out I don't obey mom, and I end up breaking a couple things off this little shelf. My sister brings that story up frequently. Mom doesn't. I don't know why that is. I guess that's siblings. But uh, it's, a, it's a reminder. I'm always reminded, you know, we're the ones in the store that we don't want to be told what not to do. We want to do it. And then when we do it, we end up harming ourselves. You see, friends, no one loved me in the store more than my mom. So as mom says, do not, it's not because she's trying to restrict my freedom as a child. It's because she doesn't want me to be the dumb child who's cut up on the ground bleeding because he ran into the glass display. No one loves you more than God. And when God says no, it's not because he's mean, it's because he loves. All right? It's because he loves. So how can we come to see that what he says is good is really good for us and what's evil is really evil for us? I would say to you, the more you know God, the more you'll see his character. The more you'll see in your word that it says in his word that he is a shepherd. I don't know any shepherd that intentionally harms sheep. Do you? The games I think about, you know, a shepherd that's like, let's play kick the cotton ball, you know? I don't know any shepherd that plays that game. I don't know any shepherd that intentionally leads his sheep to muddy waters like, drink the mud. (laughs) I don't know any shepherd that's like, here, woofie, woofie, woofie. I don't know any shepherd that does that, right? What does the shepherd do to the wolf? He does Chuck Norris to the wolf. That's what happens, right? So hear the word of the Lord. He is not just a mean tyrant king, friends. He is a loving shepherd who's leading for our best. And you want to know how I know that to be completely true? You will never see a God who has a greater regard for you than this. He took all of your evil and he put it on his own son so that he might do good to you. 
friends, that's the kind of God I could follow anywhere. That's the kind of God I want to fully trust. That's a God that has my best interest at heart from the foundation of the world. That he takes all the evil that we have chosen, and when we've loved the evil and not hated it, he's taken all of that and put it on Christ Jesus that we might receive good. Is there any better news than the gospel? Is there any better thing to spread to this city and to this nation than this gospel? Let me give you a summary then. God, the Holy Sovereign One, declares what is good and evil. He tells us what is good and evil in His Word and on our hearts. His passion should be our passion, and His ways are always for our best. Just as I went a few weeks ago for a recheck of the blood levels, friends, we need to have a recheck. And here is the vital signs. This is telling us what we should be like. And so the question this morning is, are we loving without masks? Do you really love the folks that are here? Or do you just shake hands, pat backs, and go on? That's not good enough. That's not gospel. That's not the church. We may need to repent. We may need to seek forgiveness. We may need to hug one another. We may not need to go to lunch. We may need to cry and weep with one another and be restored to one another to be the church that loves. Are we the people then that are leading others toward evil or away for evil? Young people, as you date, are you leading them toward evil or away from evil? Parents, as you parent, are you leading them away toward evil or away from evil? Leaders, as you lead at work, are you leading them toward evil or away from evil? You might say, I'm not saying anything to these people, but they're watching your life, friend. Are we leading others toward good and away from good and clinging into them? Are there people this morning, maybe the Lord laid someone on your heart, you've been silent for too long. And you know they're letting go of good and they're embracing evil. And maybe this morning it's about praying for the courage that when you leave here, that's the first phone call. Hey, let's meet up because I love you. Let's meet up because I love you. You're letting go of the good. I don't want to sit silent. His ways are always best. The question that we have corporately then, does Baton Rouge see these things in us? Can Baton Rouge see Romans 12, 9 in Crosspoint? Is it evident to BR that we hate evil and we love good and we love without masks? If it's not, friends, let's not rush out of here. Let's be honest and transparent and say, this morning I'm loving evil. You've got to change my heart, God. This morning I'm not clinging to what's good. Help me. I want to give you a chance to respond this morning. I want to give you a chance to pray through these things. Without Christ, Romans 12, 9 will never be true of us. He is our only hope for this, friends. Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes your word uh, convicts us. I never.